This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. I just want to give a quick thanks to Euro Classics for sponsoring this episode. Euro Classics is all about collector cars, from servicing your new BMW M5 to prepping your Porsche for the racetrack to executing a total restoration on your favorite classic. They do it all from routine maintenance to performance upgrades to appraisals and everything in between. You can learn more about its owner, Dale Oaks, by listening to episode number 65 of this podcast. And you can find Euro Classics in the Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana service area and online at euroclassics.com. Classics, C-L-A-S-S-I-X dot com. Well, welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. I appreciate you listening every week, as you always do. And I know you like market trends, so this will be a fun one. We are going to cover Land Rover market trends with Adam Check from Copley Motor Cars. Adam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We've met years ago, actually, and I was working my day job in the Boston market and I had heard of Copley Motor Cars, but honestly, I didn't know where in the country you guys were. And then, sure enough, I'm just like driving by and I see all these amazing Land Rover Defenders sitting outside, along with some other great cars inside. And you were nice enough to let me go into the backpack, the secret quote unquote room in the back. And there was a Porsche 959. So, amazing, incredible stuff there. And I wanted to see before we get into the market trends, talking about Land Rovers. If you could kind of give us an overview as far as what you do and kind of a little bit of a background on Copley. Thanks, Greg. So, uh, so my position with Copley Motor Cars, I am essentially a sales manager where my day-to-day is managing our inventory, both procuring cars uh, that we purchase and we also consign some cars in select cases, as well as managing um, the, the care of our inventory of servicing needs and that sort of thing to make sure that we're putting the best possible product out there for our clients. And then, of course, working with sales and post-sale support and client relationship management and everything like that that we do as well. A lot of that is Land Rover Defenders, but as you had touched on, you know, we do a lot of other stuff as well, including classic and vintage Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari of all ages, but definitely with a focus on older vintage and classic Ferrari, um, as well as Porsches of all types, but certainly with a focus on air-cooled Porsches as well. So we cover a lot of territory. Yeah, and if you would, give us kind of like a little bit of background how Copley started and, you know, how it's grown over the years. Yeah, so uh, so Copley was uh, started about 26 years ago by Stu Carpenter, who still owns the business today. And uh, it started out as a teeny tiny two-car showroom in Copley Square in downtown Boston. And um, those of you guys who know the area know that Copley is essentially the 
kind of the heart and soul of uh, the Back Bay downtown area of the financial district and everything like that. And, um, you know, so Stu Carpenter had this vision to start this little boutique dealer showroom right in the heart of the financial business district in the city. And the very first car that he purchased for Coffee Motor Cars inventory was a yellow 1994 Land Rover Defender 90 NAS specification. So, um, so that was the very first car that we ever did back in uh, 1995, 94, 95, uh, kind of the winter between the two. And, you know, here we are today uh, with now over 1,200 NAS Defender transactions under our belt. That's just insane. And when I think of Land Rover Defenders, you're the guys I think about because you always have such a great inventory up there. And I mean, I just go up there, forget what's inside, take a picture of the cool stuff on the outside because it's, yeah, it's just wonderful. And if you go to my Instagram feed, you'll have to scroll back a ways because it's been a while since I've been there to visit you. But I remember there was like a red, white, and blue, you know, defenders in a row outside. It was super cool. And I know there are a lot of different models and specialties, but how was it just personal preference that Stu got into Land Rovers? Obviously, you know, the Northeast is a great place for him. But what what was the driving reason for that initially? Just the passion for uh, for the mark? You know, it's just kind of a right place, right time uh, sort of thing. Where so back then, so this was 1994, where that was the very first year that NAS Defenders were being sold new, or at least NAS Defender 90s were being sold new through the dealer network here in the states. So back then, um, these were just kind of uh, boutique used cars. You know, there hadn't been a, they weren't collector at that point. They were a year old, if that. And uh, back in the early days, we were just buying it from, um, you know, Mannheim auctions and that sort of thing, just like today that, you know, used BMWs and Audis and everything are traded around. Um, That was the Defender market 25 years ago. And so um, I think that, uh, Copley Motor Cars saw an opportunity just with a really interesting vehicle that there was nothing else like it on the market and to just, uh, you know, have them available in a little bit more of a boutique setting compared to just sitting on used car dealer lots. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I know this is a big ask, but if you could, could you give our listeners just broad strokes, the different generations out there? Because you've mentioned the Defender 90. I know there's a 110. You mentioned the NAS. Series 1, Series 2, just some broad strokes uh, just to give our folks that might not be Land Rover experts just a couple terms and phrases that they can listen forward to uh, for the rest of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the vast majority of what we do is NAS Defenders, which is NAS stands for North American Specification. And uh, that was a special, limited production, specialized model that was built for the U.S. market only. And it had uh, special equipment like a V8 engine. All of them were left-hand drive. They all were fitted with a special roll cage apparatus, um, special paint colors, and that sort of thing. And it was really um, a special edition, limited production. Each one is badge numbered with its own unique uh, three- or four-digit number. Um, that was just for the USA market. And in total, they made about 5,000 of those, and they were produced only over across uh, four model years for 1993 when they sold the NAS Defender 110 here in the USA market, where there was 500 of those, or 534, technically, of those total that they made for this market. Uh, They were all identical spec, being white with the white roll cage, big four-door Defender 110, um, and then subsequently in 1994, 1995, and 1997, with a gap year there for 96, where they did not produce any, uh, okay. they made about 
they made about 4,500 NAS Defender 90s, the short two-door, um, short wheelbase version uh, for the U.S. market. And the, so that's the bulk of what we do is uh, managing those. We do also do some with the older series Land Rovers as well, which predates the Defenders. And uh, that would start out in 1948 when the very first Land Rover was created, uh, then known as the Series 1. The Series 1 generation ran through 1958 when it uh, transitioned to the Series 2 Land Rover, which had a really short production run. Uh, but that was kind of a revolutionary change to go from Series 1, which is kind of slab-sided, ultra, ultra-simple, to Series 2 Land Rover, where they kind of grew a little bit. They got the famous uh, sort of Coke bottle side um, shape to it that uh, that carried all the way through the end of Defender production some 70 years later. Um, and then uh, that transitioned after 1962 into the Series 2A, which was substantially the same, just with technical differences. And then uh, the real change came when the Series 3 uh, generation came about in the early 1970s when it went to headlights moved from the center of the car and what the English called the breakfast panel out to the fronts of the wings in a more traditional configuration, and then also changing from the um, legacy metal dashboard inside the car to a vinyl-covered, you know, more 1970s design, British Leyland-type design dashboard. Um, and that car then ran from the early 70s through the early mid-1980s when the Defender generation uh, then uh, came about. Okay, yeah, and a couple of things you mentioned there. Let's see, the Defender 90, that's 90 inches wheelbase. Is that correct in the 110s, 110? Yeah, so interestingly, the Defender 90 wheelbase is actually 92.9 inches, but it's marketed <laughs> as, as a Defender 90. So, yeah, but that's correct. Okay, and then are all 90s two doors and all 110s four doors, basically? Uh, so all 90s are two door. Uh, the 110s for the, the NAS Defender 110s were all four doors. They're in other markets around the world. There was also two-door Defender 110s available, um, which uh, available in both soft-top and hard-top configuration. But uh, for the most part, the one that everybody knows will be the four-door station wagon Defender 110, uh, as Landover calls it. Okay. Yeah, and I, I did a little bit of a deep dive on some of the market trends. I do want you to either support or dispel a urban myth. Uh, I had heard, and let's see, I had heard, I think it was the Series 1, that the actual grill was made of metal, and it was used by Australians while they were camping in the Outback, and then when it switched, like in Series 2 or Series 3, to plastic, they got all upset. Can you dispel that or <laughs> confirm it or give us the real story? I, I can, I've never done it myself, but I can uh, generally confirm the myth for sure. Um, so Land Rovers from 1948 through 1971, 72, they all had a, a heavy-duty wire mesh grill that, um, yeah, so the, so the story goes that, uh, you know, people out in the bush, whether it was in Australia or Africa or wherever, they could remove the grill from the front of the vehicle, and it was more than sturdy enough to place directly over a campfire and use it to grill on. Um the one dispelling part of that myth that I have heard, though, is that so these grills were famously galvanized steel and that uh, supposedly cooking on galvanized metal with the zinc and uh, the galvanizing is not uh, the healthiest <laughs> not choice <good. laughs> I've heard. So, uh, so I, I have heard the myth. I've also heard it's not a good idea to do. So anybody with your own out there, probably not recommended, but yes, definitely possible. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. 
Uh, okay. One thing I did want to know from your perspective, it sounds like the NAS are probably the most valuable of all Land Rovers from a classic perspective. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's absolutely correct. Okay. And then how does like, you know, the import ones, you know, from different South America or whatever, like where do they fall on the collectability range? Are those mostly used to, you know, to hot rod, not hot rod, but mod up with modern amenities? You know, yeah. what what is typically done with those cars and, the, and, and where do they place in the value spectrum? So we're in kind of an interesting place in the Defender market right now, Greg, where uh, you have this captive set of the NAS Defenders where there's only 5,000 of them which uh, have a true established collector car value. And that's been appreciating over the past several years. And it's just like any other collector car market, whether it's Porsches or anything else, where um, either ultimate purity and authenticity is most desirable, where you have a ultra-low mileage, untouched, uh, fantastically preserved, beautiful condition original car, which looks like it just rolled off the showroom floor, um, or you can have a really exquisitely restored by a name brand restoration shop uh, defender that um, would check 100 points on any you know show field and that sort of thing, but is done by a known quantity restorer with a reputation and established uh, market presence for doing that. Um, and those vehicles, without a doubt, are going to be at the top of the value spectrum for sure, um, whether you know the ultra high quality original or the pedigree correct restoration Um, and on the flip side of the spectrum with the imported defenders that we're seeing for the most part whereas there are only 5,000 NAS defenders they made 2 million regular Mm. non-NAS defenders for the rest of the world and so there's no limitations on supply Uh, just about anybody could go to Europe or go on eBay UK and for 5,000 bucks you can buy a corroded beat to death Defender pickup truck or station wagon or what have you, because everywhere else in the world, these were essentially the Ford F-150s of Europe and of Africa and everything like that. And so um, what we're seeing, uh, contrary to the tip top of the spectrum of collectability and value, we're having people that and different workshops and that sort of thing that uh, can buy a vehicle for just a few thousand dollars, spend another few thousand dollars to import it to the States and then and spruce it up with new paint and new seats and make it look really nice. And then that can be easily become a forty dollars or $50,000 vehicle, um, you know, from a fifteen dollars or $20,000 investment. So um, the problem that we're seeing with those vehicles is that um, these are done really with economics only in mind and not with underlying quality and authenticity and integrity in mind. So, sure. um, so down the road after somebody might purchase, uh, you know, what looks like a fantastic defender with shiny new metallic paint and diamond stitch seats and all this sort of stuff in it. It's still a 30 year old beat to death farm truck underneath it all. And there's a lot of, uh, remedial work that has to be done to bring it up to even a reasonable standard. So, um, so that's, so that's kind of the dichotomy of the Land Rover market today, where on one end you have ultra high end, uh, NAS defender values, which are kind of, uh, bringing all ships up with the tide, so to speak. Sure. But then there's also, um, kind of a, uh, less, uh, lesser element where, you know, these vehicles are easily turned for massive profit at the low end of the scale as well. So knowing how to navigate that and understand and evaluate what's really a good example versus a not so good example, uh, can be tricky. 
Right, right. And has anyone broken out from a builder's perspective? For example, Icon with Toyota FJs. I know you have one on your uh, in your lot now, you know, that is mm-hmm. of a quality that you feel like, you know what, this is something that we would not mind selling or carrying in our inventory. Yeah, so with, without a doubt, Greg, for almost 30 years now, the best Defender restoration shop in the whole world has been East Coast Rover from Rockland, Maine. And that's a shop uh, owned by uh, a man named Mike Smith. And um, they turn out second to none, factory correct and improved on factory correct quality Defender restorations at kind of uh, approaching like the singer level of Defenders, wow. right? Yeah. Um, not not to the same level of artistic design and essentially, you know, jewelry like Singer can be, right? Um, but it, that dialed in and at that level of, of quality. Um, there's a lot of shops that are really good, but they are head and shoulders the best in the world. Sure. Okay. Now you gave me a spot I need to visit next time I'm in Maine, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mike's, uh, Mike's operation is really uh, something to say. Yeah, no, I'll have to check that out. All right, so not counting the NAS defenders, what would be a tier two from a valuation, valuable standpoint? Like, you know, all right, take those 5,000 out of the mix. This is next. Is it a series one? Is it a series three? Is it a soft top? Is it a pickup? Is it a, you know, four door? Uh, so, so strictly talking about the kind of traditional Land Rovers like that, right? Whether it's a defender or a series or that sort of thing. Um, after the NAS defenders, the ROW or rest of world defenders, which would be produced from 1983 uh, up through um, really 2016, but for illegal import, you know, up to 25 years old. Sure. Um, those are definitely second tier. And um, as I touched on a couple of minutes ago, the trouble with evaluating that pool of vehicles is really each individual one uh, has to be judged on its own. Um, and you have to really understand the quality of each individual one that you're looking at. Uh, what I've seen stand out from a value perspective are ultra high quality original cars that are super cool, right? So we've seen a few that it's like a 1985 Land Rover 110 station wagon, which would be, you know, carbureted V8, big clunky four-speed manual, uh, kind of a retro brown uh, tweed interior, and, you know, with some cool, like, retro stripes on the side that'll say, like, county or something like that on the side. Um, right. You know, those, when they're really well-preserved and low mileage and authentic and correct, we've seen those are now trading at pretty high values as well um, because, uh, you know, they're pure to the, you know, original specification and uh, difficult to reproduce. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, so I did pull... The Haggerty valuation trends for three months, one year, four year for each of the different generations. And basically, I just picked a couple of them to kind of get a ballpark feel. For some reason, and I might have missed it, they did not have the Series 1 in their database. But it's probably there, and I probably just missed it. So that is not included. Um, Some of the trends I picked up, this is where I need you to correct me if I'm not correct. Uh, It seemed like are soft tops always the most valuable regardless of generation? It seemed like in some of the generations, the pickups might've been a little bit more desirable. Uh, so soft tops uh, definitely have the most uh, desirability. They also made the most of them. So um, it's difficult to say if that's a chicken and the egg situation with that. Um, but soft tops, I mean, everybody thinks of a fun Land Rover canvas top, um, you know, either roll up the side curtains on the soft top, take the whole soft top off, throw the family in it, go to the beach, that sort of thing. Uh, so from a use case perspective and what people like to use these cars for, the soft tops definitely have the most appeal. 
Right. Okay. And then obviously the V8 is the most desirable, mostly because was that only in the NAS or were they a V8 available in other non-NAS? Is that rest of the world? Uh, yeah. So rest of the world, there were some V8s, although not many. They were usually in markets like uh, the Middle Eastern, the, the Saudi Arabia market and that sort of thing. Also got um, V8 defenders. Uh, but for the most part, they were concentrated with the USA market. Okay. And then after that, I showed the V6, then the diesel and the four cylinders came in the end there. And then in general, are the two doors worth more than the four? Or is it the like the 93 four-door Defender worth, you know, the most kind of thing? Um, so the so it kind of depends, right? Um, it really depends on the individual use case. Um, m- again, most of my expertise is with the NAS Defender market. And for the longest time, the NAS Defender 110s being four-door, those were at the top of the value spectrum of all of the NAS defenders. And that hmm. was for a couple of reasons. Um, they only were, there were only 500 pieces, so they were rare to begin with. And then uh, also um, being four-door and the ability to fit in total nine people in one made it a great vacation house car for a family. Um, you know, if you've got more than two kids, a Defender 90 can be a little bit cramped. So uh, so for the beach house or the ski house or whatever, a Defender 110 was a cool thing to have around where you could throw everybody with the cousins and aunts and uncles. Everybody could jump in it. And you had, you know, a big, uh, big, cool looking safari beach car. Sure. So um, so those were really at the top of the value spectrum for a long, long time. Probably, you know, I'm talking from the time they came out in the early 90s all the way up to 2008, 2010 or so. And then um, what happened there was that um, once the... 20, EPA 25-year uh, importation rule came into play with bringing in ROW defenders. Most of the ROW defenders that have been imported here to the States from elsewhere have been four-door Defender 110s. Hmm. And so then all of a sudden the 500-piece uh, market limitation was really no longer in effect because now somebody, if they just wanted a four-door Defender and they didn't care if it was NAS or otherwise – they were available. So um, so ever since then, which started in 2008 when the very first four-door Defender 110s being produced in 1983, once those became eligible for importation, um, the NAS Defender 110 market started to struggle a little bit. And uh, there became, you know, big business around people taking, you know, an imported uh, 1983 Defender 110 and then converting it with, a, you know, an LS Chevy V8 and redone interior and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, that really put a lot of pressure on the NAS 110 market, which was trading in the, at the time, you know, $125,000 to $175,000 range, where then, you know, somebody could purchase for a similar price, something that was kind of modernized and upgraded and that sort of thing. A lot of people were opting for the modernized, upgraded, you know, non-pure car, uh, which suppressed NAS 110 values uh, for a little while. And uh, we're now just starting to see that really with, a, a strong rebound where um, I think people are coming back around to realize that, hey, this was an authentic special edition that was made for the U.S. market that really kicked off this whole Defender thing. It is an important car for what it is. And even if it is a 1993 car with a little bit more outdated technology and uh, you know not as powerful of an engine and that sort of thing, it's still worthwhile from a collector's perspective. So uh, over the last probably two years, we've seen NAS 110 values are um, you know, on the rebound once again. Yeah, yeah. And did you say those 500 were all white? They were, yeah. So they were all uh, alpine white, which is kind of a an off-white uh, color that Land Rover made. 
Okay. All right. No, that's really cool. Yeah, I know. I know that you have one or two at your location right now. Is that right? We do. Yeah, we've got a couple of them right now. We always tend to have uh, one or two of them, um, if not on hand. We have one close at hand uh, because we're we're always doing something with one of those. Well, and you probably try to keep track of where all those things are too, right? <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, we we have a pretty substantial database. I would imagine you've probably resold you know a few of them quite a few times if if I if I'm guessing right, right? Oh yeah, definitely. So uh, so we love our repeat visitors, right? And um, the a typical pattern of defender ownership for us, um, at least historically, has been you know we would somebody would buy one from us and they would have it for two to three years and enjoy it and have fun with it. And then, you know, on about that time frame, would call us up and say, hey, you know, I've had a ton of fun with my Defender. I loved it, but, you know, I'm thinking about getting something else. And then, you know, we would could take it back in and and uh, then remarket it once again to send it off to another new home. So what has changed a little bit in probably the last three years is it seems like people are holding on to them a little bit more tightly and there's not as much turnover um, you know, whereas before somebody, you know, maybe two years, two to three years was the average ownership time. Now that's maybe creeping closer to four to five years um, where our, our clients are hanging on to them a bit longer. Yeah, right, right. Now, you mentioned an LS Corvette engine, so I'm going to have to ask the engine swap question. How good is the NAS V8? Is that a 305, something like that? And then if is an engine swap acceptable if it's X, you know, if it is an LS or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the NAS Defenders were all sold here with either a 3.9 liter or 4.0 liter, which is essentially the same engine. They just uh, made some revisions and then changed the nomenclature of it. Um, that it were great engines. I mean, they weren't powerhouses by any means. They were all about 190 horsepower. Um, but for what the vehicle is supposed to do, they were perfect at it. Um, that engine, interestingly enough, it's a legacy engine design from General Motors that uh, was in the early 1960s. It was the Buick 215 all-aluminum V8 uh. that was used in cars like the Skylark and that sort of thing, um, you know, like the, in the early 60s. And um, General Motors kind of uh, ran, ran, they ran their course with that engine design, and then in the mid-60s, they sold the design and the tooling and everything like that to British Leyland in the U.K., and the very first cars that received the English version of that engine, called the uh, at the time then called the Rover V8, uh, was some Rover cars like the Rover SD1 car, um, and then also the very first Range Rover, which came out in the late 1960s around 1970, was the very first uh, Range Rover, which featured um, that uh, three and a half liter Rover V8. You, you have someone that comes in, they want to sell their uh, Defender, and it has an engine swap. What's your first thought? Uh, so my my first thought with any, and this applies for any type of car, right, but it, especially yeah. <laughs> with Defenders, is that um, to what level was the work done? Right. And uh, and that's that covers a broad range, right? Because, I mean, in today's day and age with the Internet and with parts availability and anybody can pretty much figure it out how to put an LS in anything these days, but it all depends on how well it's actually executed. So I've seen everything from something that, looks like it was done in, you know, 20 minutes worth of work out back with you know, things barely connected and, you know, inexpensive parts. And it just looks like a mess all the way up to where, you know, a really detail oriented shop has put a lot of time and effort into perfecting this and where it looks better than factory. Um, so that really, for me, is the deciding factor um, more so than, uh, you know, on 
uh, on principle alone, I'm I'm okay with it, but it really comes down to how well the execution actually uh, was done. Sure, sure, yeah, okay. Well, I do want to review a few market trends. I'm just going to do the big generations as identified by Haggerty. So I'm I'm guessing some of these might be slightly off. So I'll just throw out some numbers there and. You know, let me know if you agree, disagree. One thing I do like to say about Haggerty, it is replacement value. So if you're looking to, you know, value your car, I think they're typically 15 to 20% higher than what the true true uh, value of a car is just because, you know, it's more of a replacement kind of value. Um, let's see, for the 59 to 71 Series 2, Series 2A, this is pretty interesting, four-year change up 70.8% to 74.2%, yeah. right? That sounds right. That sounds that actually sounds right, believe it or not, Greg. I mean it's um it's really crazy what has happened with that early Land Rover market. Um for the longest time, you know, even our conversation today, we've spent a lot of time talking about NAS defenders, which have always been um the most um exchanged and the most fluid market for the for Land Rovers. But um over the past few years, the attention that has now been paid to the vintage Land Rover market is just mind blowing. Um, you know, for the longest time, really good ones, right? Really good ones were, I don't know, at the most twelve, fifteen thousand dollars. It was you'd be right. hard pressed, <laughs> you'd be hard pressed ten years ago to find a twenty or twenty-five thousand dollar Series Two A Land Rover. Um, I mean, they just didn't exist. The very best ones were, yeah, fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars. The very best ones. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because the average number one condition, again, this is somewhat inflated, but it's seventy six to ninety one thousand dollars. <laughs> and yeah. were all of those two doors, or were there four doors for the those two series there? Uh, so there were two door and four door, as well as uh, sh- uh, short wheelbase and long wheelbase uh, versions as well. Okay, all right. So uh, let's see. The next generation I have is the nineteen seventy to nineteen ninety five Land Rover Range Rover. Does that sound correct from a span of years? Uh, yes, that's correct. There's there's definitely um, some stratification within that, though, uh, which uh, we can touch on. But overall, yes, that would be the range of the Range Rover Classic, as people would know it. Okay. Yeah, four-year change, 45 to 55.5% up. Interesting, the most recent three-month change is actually flat, 0%, just flat. Um, I show the average number one condition price, 55 to 65 grand. And the most valuable one, that I found while I was doing a brief survey was the 1995 Range Rover 25th anniversary around 65K. What would you put as possibly the most valuable or rarest one of that generation? Uh, so uh, without a doubt, you hit the nail on the head. The 1995, which is the okay. final year Range Rover Classic, that is the most sought after. And the values of that specific model year car are for a similar condition example from just even a year prior, the 1995 will be worth 30% more than, a, oh, than, wow. the, than the prior year car. Um, that's a, it's a really interesting year, the 1995, where uh, it was the final year that they were producing that body, that chassis, that platform, everything. But yet for the final year, they completely redesigned the dashboard and the interior and everything of the car and modernized it with now uh, passenger and driver um, airbags, whereas the prior cars had no airbags whatsoever, as well as a much better um, heating, ventilation, air conditioning uh, system, better radio controls, and everything. I mean, if you look at the inside dashboard of a 1995 Range Rover, is much more modern of a car than the prior year, which is essentially a legacy design from 1970-ish. 
So, uh, so that very final year, for lots of reasons, being the final year that it was made, they didn't make very many of them that year, and then also because of those final year changes, which make it a nicer car, those trade at a significant premium compared to earlier Range Rover Classics. So now, was that dashboard a one-year only, or did it go into the new body style in 96? One year only. So uh, then starting with oh, wow. the, the next generation Range Rovers called the P38 generation, that is a completely different car uh, that does not share any platform or interior or anything with the, uh, with the Range Rover Classic. So if you're buying a 1995 Land Rover Range Rover 25th anniversary, make sure the dash is in good shape. Yes, yeah, and the parts are hard to find as well. So you want to make sure you buy something that does not need much. Wow, that's interesting. All right, so the Land Rover Series 3, Haggerty has a 1971 to 1974, but I thought you went. You said it went much longer than that. It did. So that's, uh, so what, um, the 1972, it would really be 72 to 74. That would okay. be for the USA market. That's when they brought them here to the States. That uh, chassis actually ran through 1983 uh, for the rest of the world. Okay, okay. So that four-year change, as identified by Haggerty, 25.9 to 33.6, so still strong appreciation. What's really interesting, the most recent three months, it's up 20%. I mean, I think that was actually maybe the strongest on the most recent three months. So that's interesting. Are you seeing that as well? Uh, So I haven't seen that so much firsthand, but I absolutely believe it. Um, You know, as you had referenced with some of that Haggerty data earlier, the Series 2 and 2A market, over the past several years, is easily up by 75%, uh, as as that had mentioned. Um, The Series 3 market, with some of the changes that they made, it traditionally has not been as desirable as the 2 and 2A, but um, with so much attention and the way the market has risen on the 2 and 2A, the the Series 3s are just now starting to rise also. Um, So I'm not surprised by that at all. Okay. All right, two more big buckets, because I didn't go into the 2000s, but uh, they have identified the Land Rover Defender 1983 to 1993, and then they the second one they had the Land Rover Defender, I guess that's the 110, then they had the Land Rover Defender 90, 90 84 to 97. Mm-hmm. Are those uh, fairly close? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. So for the Defender 110, the four-year change, uh, 23.3% on the low end, but then one a few of the models were up almost 70% over the latest four years. And the one month or the three month change was plus twenty percent, and uh, I show the average number one condition ninety to one hundred, and the most valuable I show and correct me if I'm wrong, it's the nineteen ninety three. Is that the uh, the one of five hundred one hundred and eighty five thousand uh, from a valuation standpoint? The four door wagon is that is that the NAS? Yes, uh, that would definitely be the NAS Defender one ten. That so that was a nineteen ninety three model year. They only made five hundred of them. That's and, it. Yep. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we've seen transactions easily in that range and significantly higher depending on uh, the specifics sure. of, a, of a given example. Yeah, originality, all that good stuff. All right. Yeah. yeah. And the last one's the 84 to 97 Land Rover Defender 90. Four-year change, 31.5 to 69.4% up, depending on the model and options. Three-month change was either flat up to 19%, depending on the model. Average number one condition, 90 to 163. And the most valuable seemed to be a two-door soft top. Does that sound right? I guess it'd have to be a two-door soft top. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that sounds right. So there were also two-door hardtop versions that were made, although not as many. Um, but yes, the, that, those trends are absolutely correct. Um, I mean, I, I remember it was about four years ago that a top-tier NAS Defender 90 with 
30,000 original miles on it and in beautiful original condition, that was about an $85,000 car. Right. Um, that same example today, again, you know, so 1997, Defender 90, 30,000 original miles and everything that it should be, uh, that same car today will be 160000 to $170,000. So, um, and that's just, over, you know, that's over about four years, the way the, the market has moved on that car. Wow, that's really insane. All right, so I do have two more questions for you. Uh, let's see, do you have a Land Rover in your garage right now? Uh, more than one. Oh, okay. What do you have? <laughs> uh, so I have a um, 1972, which is a Series 3, 88-inch wheelbase. So Series 3, short wheelbase, two-door, soft top, which mm. is a bit of a, a bit of a resto mod car. Um, I have uh, converted it to a later 200 TDI turbo diesel engine nice. with a five-speed five gearbox and power steering um, to make it a little bit better of a, of a daily driver. Uh, so I have that car. Uh, I also have, with my dad and I share, a 1983 Land Rover 109 four-door station wagon. That's another ongoing project that uh, we worked on together. And uh, I also have a 1989 Italian market Land Rover Defender 90 two-door uh, oh, cool. top. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. All right. Now, what is is there, like, what's your dream? I don't want to keep it all to Defenders, but we are talking about their market trends but what's your dream land rover it could be anything so be brand for, new <laughs> so for the last i don't know month or so greg i have not been able to keep my mind off of a early 80s four-door v8 manual transmission range rover classic mm. i think uh i think that that car um especially with where the market is on those right now so we're talking about this would either be a gray market usa Range Rover, or it would be a Rest of World Range Rover Classic. Something from around 1983 was the very first year that they made them with four doors. And to find uh, that type of a car in left-hand drive, V8, manual transmission with air conditioning and really nice either preserved condition or with a, you know, a, a gentle restoration, that car um, I think is massively underappreciated today and would be a ton of fun. Um, you get all the uh, the comforts of driving something that's an actual Range Rover versus a utility vehicle like a Defender can be, and then also, uh, but still with you know V8 engine, power steering, air conditioning, you know all the all the things that make it nice to actually use, but uh, you know wrapped up in that classic Range Rover um, you know appearance. Right, right, okay, yeah, that sounds awesome. There's one locally I I saw it once and it was driving through the cruising and I'm like oh my gosh I got to figure out who that is. But it was a, uh, I believe it was mid, early 90s, maybe, I don't know, 94, 95. It was a four-door soft top V8 yellow. So what would that have been? That sounds like something that was probably a rest of world defender that uh, somebody had, uh, you know, a workshop customized into what it is today. Um, there was never a four-door soft top made by the factory. Oh. Um, interesting. But it's, but the way, yeah, so interesting, right? But with the way that these cars um, are constructed, they're kind of like big Lego sets in a lot of ways, you know, where it's not too difficult to mix and match parts from a couple of different configurations. Uh, that's all just nuts and bolts. And you can create some kind of cool stuff like a four door soft top. Right. Okay. All right. All right. I'll have to track it down. Maybe it'll be a deal. It's not, it doesn't seem like it's worth as, or it's not as 
pure of a car, so maybe uh, that's maybe right. Deal. I, yeah. I hope so. So yeah. So uh, so stuff like that in general. Again, it all depends on the execution of the individual example, um, but they can cover a pretty broad range in value from um, you know forty thousand dollars up to one hundred and forty thousand dollars. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now I do want to play my little game. I don't think I gave you a heads up on called Keep Cash and Crush. But before we get to that, is there something else you'd like to cover as far as Land Rovers that I have not brought up? Um, no. So probably one of the most interesting things, Greg, that uh, has really happened in the marketplace, especially uh, with uh, the NAS Defenders over the past just a couple of years, is just a really strong stratification in the market where. Um, you know, the absolute top tier defenders are we've had a couple of transactions now for NAS Defender 90s. Uh, one of them had 3000 original miles. It wow. was completely correct. The other one had 10,000 original miles. Also completely correct. These cars are beautiful. Uh, and both of those cars have traded at over two hundred thousand um, oh, wow. dollars in short order as well. I mean, in a in a very hot market that um, they sold quickly at those figures and um that is a, a massive leap ahead of where even today's market, you know, just a really nice conditioned car with 75 to 100,000 miles on it. That's good, but not great. Um, you know, that'll be a 80 to $90,000, right? So um, it's just a massive change where the true, true top tier cars that are collector grade, you know, I hate this. I hope to God that there's never a defender displayed at Pebble Beach, but <laughs> if we're going to talk, if we're going to say, the Pebble, Pebble Beach uh, Showfield level Defender is, I mean, a multiple of value-wise higher than just an average one. So that's something that's really new to this market. Um, it's common amongst other collector cars where you have that difference. Um, but for a long time, the Defender market was very um, condensed where um, pretty much all the examples were under 100000 and there wasn't a big difference between a crazy top-tier car and a really good one. But now, um, I mean, we've seen just a massive disparity where the, the very best cars are trading at, you know, easily twice the value of just a really good one. Right, right. No, that's a great call out. And actually, I do have another question for you. Is there a modern version that you think will be a future collectible? Like I know I, I can't remember the model name, but they had the little convertible version for a while there. Is there one today that oh, you yeah. think, you know, 30 years from now, people will be talking about like you are these defenders? Uh, so, so the one that you mentioned, that's the Land Rover Freelander, which uh, I don't think anybody will ever uh, look back fondly on those cars. <laughs> but uh, uh, interestingly enough, though, that was the number one selling SUV in Europe for the longest time. While that when they were new, that was like Europe's, uh, you know, Honda CRV or Toyota RAV4 of its of its day. Wow. Um, but never has never caught on as a collector car. Never had. It was never unique enough to really have much appeal beyond just practicality. Um, but as far as, you know, modern day stuff goes, um, what I'm already fielding tons of interest on are the very last Land Rover LR4s, which mm. uh, that car ran from 2010 through 2016 uh, was when that car ran from. And um, that will be the very last body on frame construction kind of true uh, world beating SUV that Land Rover had made. Um, and so... Uh, that even today, you know, values of that car, even for an example with forty, fifty thousand miles on it, they're probably up by thirty, forty percent over the past several years. Uh, just as people seek them out for that true kind of last real Land Rover ownership experience. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I need to go go to CarMax tomorrow and see what I can find. <laughs> yeah, really interesting cars for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that's cool. Well, what's the best way uh, for our listeners to learn more about you and Copley? Uh, so Copley Motorcars, you can always find us on our website, which is copleymotorcars.com. Uh, we also have an Instagram presence under Copley Cars and also my personal Instagram, which is Adam G. Check. Awesome, man. All right. Well, like I said, I do have a little game to play, and it's not that hard, but I did want to focus in on non-Land Rovers for this particular one. So I'm going to give oh, you perfect. Th- yeah, I'm going to give you three cars. You have to pick one to keep forever, one that you're going to cash in, and then unfortunately, one that you're going to send to the crusher, okay? Uh, that's okay. There's lots of cars out there that deserve to be crushed. <laughs> well, I decided to show that you guys are more than just Land Rovers, so I picked three cars that are in your current inventory there in Boston, okay? So oh, should... this is going to be fun. Yeah, you should know these fairly well. I, I might have given you a softball here for the crush, but we'll see. All right, the first one's a 1970 Mercedes-Benz 280 SL Roadster four-speed manual, which made that car pretty interesting, and it's a pretty blue mm-hmm. color. Yep, that's a good car. Yeah, and then uh, let's see, your next one's a 1989 Porsche 911 930 Turbo Cabriolet. I think it was also like a kind of a gray, silver gray. Does that sound right? Yeah, really, really cool car. That car, was, uh, it's a USA-spec car, but was delivered new to Japan, where it lived in Japan for the first 25 years of its life. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And then the last one, a little bit more modern, the 2005 Ferrari 575M Marinello F1 GTC. That's one of my favorite cars. So those are your three cars. Which one will you keep forever? Which one will you cash in? And unfortunately, which one will you send to the crusher? Uh, so I would probably have to keep the 89 930 Turbo. I oh, absolutely okay. love that car. Um, I think that uh, that's the final year of the, um, of the G-Body Porsche before the 964. Uh, the driving experience is just second to none with an air-cooled turbo engine. And then that year also being 89, it's the only year that the G50 five-speed gearbox was mm-hmm. available with the uh, turbo engine. Um, and so that car, I mean, uh, I mean, of course you guys will slice it thin. It's also the last time that they, or the only time that they made a air-cooled turbo cabriolet. There was none left after that. So really, um, yeah, that's an so interesting fact. Did, yeah, exactly. So they, they never made a nine six four or a nine nine three as a turbo cabriolet. So, uh, so that, that's the one. And I just love those cars. That example in particular is just fantastic. So that's the one that I'm keeping forever, and I would cherish it dearly. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> now yeah, for the tough yeah, part. So, yeah, so, the, uh, so now the tough part. So the, uh, I would have to cash in on the 280 SL. I think that uh, the 280 SL uh, car, it's, uh, they're fantastic, especially as a four-speed. It's a really interesting car and spirited to drive, especially compared to the automatic transmission versions, which can be a little bit lethargic. Uh, but with the four-speed, that's a great car. Market is really strong in the four-speeds right now. And that blue color, no matter what car it is, if it's painted in that color, it seems to be worth 30% more than any other color. So I'm going to cash it in. And that means what? And then, of course, (laughs) I am sadly going to have to crush the 575 Marinello with the F1 gearbox. And that's uh, just because there's there's just too many of them. Um, You know, we, we could help raise the values of all the rest of them if there's one less on the road. <laughs> okay, that's a fair reasoning. <laughs> I, I thought the Mercedes for crushing was the softball, so I'm, I'm 
surprised and pleased that you did not go that route. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, those are those are good cars. I like those a lot. All right, Adam. Well, thank you so much for being on the Collector Car Podcast. You shared how we can reach out to you. You shared all the cool stuff you're doing up there in Boston. And you also shared some great market trends. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks a lot, Greg. We'd love to do it again sometime. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.